Amen. Please be seated. If you have a Bible, please turn to Genesis chapter 38. We'll look at this text. It'll be the first of our uh, sermons, um, this Advent series on the mothers of Jesus. We're looking at the life of Tamar, actually the life of uh, Judah and Tamar together as it's presented here in this um, chapter 38. These are the the women who are named in the genealogy that uh, Sarah read for the gospel reading. Uh, congratulations. There were very few errors with all those names. It was really good. <laughs> um, we should have all applauded uh, after she finished that. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, we're, we're going to go through, um, if, you, if you noticed when she was reading, there were five women named in the, um, the genealogy. That's in Matthew 1. Uh, Jesus' royal lineage includes Tamar here in Genesis 38, and Rahab, the prostitute, and Ruth, and um, Uriah's wife, and then also Mary, finally. So we're going to look at those uh, five women over five weeks. Um, The genealogy, um, you probably totally checked out, actually, when Sarah was reading it. Um, They're they're not usually considered the most fascinating parts of the Bible. Um, we might uh, be tempted to read genus, uh, the Jesus genealogy as if it was recounting something like the kings of old, you know, glorious ancestry and uh, esteemed pedigree of the greatest man ever to live. I mean, why else would it be recorded uh, in the Holy Scripture than to show how awesome Jesus' lineage was? Uh, uh, why else would it be recorded than, than to impress? But if you're reading it that way, um, you're reading it wrong. If you read it at all, if you just don't just skim through it in your regular reading of the Gospels, um, but if you're if you're reading it as if it were uh, you know a glorious ancestry that shows really wow how remarkable Jesus must be because look at all these great people in his um, ancestry, then um, you're you're reading it wrong that way, and it, it might tip you off to the fact you're actually reading the whole Bible wrong. I don't know if you ever thought about this. The, the genealogy makes an impression. All right, and it's kind of the impression that you get from the whole Old Testament. It shocks you. It makes you wonder why God would even bother with people like this, let alone write them into the story of his salvation, graft them into the family tree of his own son. Right? Why would God even bother with people like that? That's probably more what we're supposed to read the genealogies like and even the, the whole Old Testament. Uh, you know, those people that Sarah was reading, if if they're not complete nobodies who don't even get a story in the Bible, like who is that guy, I don't even know, uh, then it's likely the Bible has, has told a story about them that points out their serious character flaws, right? Serious grave problems with these people in that list. Uh, the list should probably be read with a question mark after each name, right? Abraham? Isaac? Jacob? Judah? You've got to be kidding me, right? Uh, That's amazing, you know, these people would be in Jesus' family. Um, So this morning, we're going to consider Judah and Tamar and their relationship as it's seen in Genesis 38. Uh, And if you've ever read through the book of Genesis and gotten that far, um, and if you were paying attention, you're probably confused, you're probably appalled at the the fact that this story even gets mentioned in the Bible. It's hideous, right? It really is bad. Um, And kind of on a side note, you know, when you're reading the Bible especially in the Old Testament, you need to be aware of the fact that many bad things are recorded precisely to give an honest picture of how bad things really are. 
right? The Bible doesn't cover over things, doesn't sugarcoat things. Um, the Bible gives you a clear picture, an honest picture of how bad things really are. The Bible wasn't pr- uh, primarily written so that we could know how to be good. It wasn't written primarily for us to know how to be good people, but so that we could be honest about how bad we are and, and, and go to God for uh, help to find mercy and grace and salvation in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's the main point of the Bible. So two uh, good questions to ask yourself, especially when you're reading the Old Testament, Old Testament stories that otherwise might be confusing. Um, Two good questions you can ask. First, how does this passage help me understand my need for grace? How does this passage help me understand my need for grace? Which means it's putting me in a bad, bad light. Right, you're in a tight spot. How does it help me understand my need for grace? And then secondly, what does this passage tell me about God's provision for grace? Uh, Old Testament stories. Ask that question of every single one of them. What does it say about how bad things really are for me? And then what does it say about what God's doing to, to fix everything, to provide grace and mercy for me? Judah and Tamar are not set forth as moral heroes for your imitation, Right? Not here. They're not set forth as moral heroes for your imitation. Their story is told, and it's woven into the grand story of the gospel of Jesus Christ to convince you that God really does have amazing grace for sinful, broken people like us, even for the very worst of us. Uh, that's why the story is told. Luther, uh, Martin Luther, the German reformer, said that passages like this are in the Bible so that the proud will learn not to be proud of their righteousness and wisdom and so no one will be able to despair over his sins. That's why this, this is recorded here for us. So uh, let's, uh, let's pray, and then we'll read Genesis 38. <clears throat> Father, there are so many reasons why we, um, in our culture and as uh, sinful people in general, would read your word and not be able to understand it very well, and we pray that your spirit would grant us understanding. And more than understanding, we pray that your spirit would um, strike us in in our hearts with a text like this about who we really are and about who you really are and about the grace for us that's found in Jesus Christ. We pray that this would be true for us as we read and hear this text. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. But it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adullamite whose name was Hira. There, Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chizib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house, 
till Sheila, my son, grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend, Hira the Adullamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I'll send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. And he said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adullamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he didn't find her. And when he asked the men of the place, where's the cult prostitute who was at Enaim on the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you didn't find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are the signet, and the cord, and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give to her my son, Shelah. And he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb, and when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez, which means breach. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, it's a long story. Uh, The context for this is it says, uh, just at the beginning, in those days, at that time, uh, this is all what happened. Uh, The context is the patriarch... You've got Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? And Jacob is the one who is renamed Israel, and he has 12 sons. I'm not going to go through their names. Uh, 12 sons who become then the, the 12 tribes of Israel, uh, the, the 12 sons of Jacob. <clears throat> and Judah was the fourth. Judah, who this story is kind of mostly about, is uh, the fourth of the sons of Jacob, the patriarch, <clears throat> the sons of Israel. And he was uh, the son of Leah, and that was the first wife that Jacob 
was kind of stuck with after being tricked by her father, Laban. I don't know if you remember that story. I'm not going to get into it. But uh, basically, that is to say, Jacob was not happy with uh, having, having to marry Leah. And so she kept having children, and one of them was Judah. Uh, <clears throat> she kept having children to uh, try to gain favor in his sight. So it's kind of a broken family, right? You, you see that. Polygamy in this family had destructive effects. Once again, uh, just because it's in the Old Testament doesn't mean that God is condoning something. Usually when polygamy is brought up in the Old Testament, it's to show its destructive effects. It's like, this is really, really bad for families. Don't do like these people did. This is not your moral example. So polygamy in this family uh, created things like insecurity and jealousy and hatred and competition. Uh, Joseph, who was Jacob's favorite son, it was their father's favorite. Um, <clears throat> he got this special coat of many colors, this robe or whatever given to him by his father as a special gift. Joseph had had dreams about his rise to power, and like the spoiled kid that he was in a broken family, he bragged about it to everybody in the family, uh, which made them hate him. It says um, in the, the chapter just before this, in chapter 37, it says several times that they just kept getting angry. They kept increasing in their hatred of Joseph until one day they finally got him alone and they were going to kill him but instead they ended up throwing him in a pit and they sold him into slavery and it was Judah who had suggested the guy that our chapter is about it was Judah who had suggested that hey instead of killing him what profit is that to us let's make a profit let's sell him into slavery right <clears throat> and so they did sold their own brother into slavery uh, and then they took his special robe, that coat of many colors, you know, and they uh, killed a goat and they put the blood all over it. And they brought it to their father to deceive him into thinking that Joseph, his favorite son, was dead. Uh, just so they, they get that part of the story over with so that uh, Jacob wouldn't be worried about him uh, anymore. And then the book of Genesis turns to follow Joseph's story, right? His slavery his uh, imprisonment, his rise to power in Egypt, and the way that basically he is kind of the savior of the whole world because God orchestrates his life in such a way to put him in a position of influence and authority to be able to save everybody from a famine, from a terrible famine. Uh, the rest of the book of Genesis, several, you know, the last major section of the book, um, is about Joseph, but there's this strange interruption here, this chapter here uh, about Judah and Tamar. So that's when this takes place. Um, it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adullamite whose name was Hira. So he went down, and language like that doesn't just mean geographically he came from a high place and went to a low place, or he went from the north to the south. It might mean those things uh, kind of first, but kind of ultimately it means um, it, it's, it's language that we use like life went downhill from there, right? Um, it's kind of a downward spiral for him, right? He went down from his brothers. He went away from them. Maybe he couldn't stand the constant reminder of his guilt, right? He's the one who had uh, sold his brother into slavery, who had suggested that whole scheme. And uh, the constant reminder of his other brothers and his father's grief, his father refused to be comforted, and uh, that constant reminder was probably too much for his guilty conscience, and so he went down away from them, <clears throat> and uh, got this new buddy, Hira. He's the guy you call up when you're going out for a crazy night. Uh, because he's the rowdy friend who's happy to push the limits of morality. 
right? He's just going to cheer you on and tell you to take that next shot. And he's that kind of guy, right? Um, that's his new buddy. And there, <clears throat> where he was then, Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite. The Canaanites are always the bad guys, right, in Genesis. They're always the pagans. Uh, stay away from them. Don't intermarry with them. Uh, they're going to bring you down spiritually. They've got false gods that they worship. That They've got their whole society built on. Just stay away from them. Uh, <clears throat> don't marry into their families. But he saw this one, uh, the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. That's the fellow's name. And he took her and went into her. And she conceived and bore a son. And she had these sons, Ur and Onan and Shelah. So Judah here really is, is kind of going off the rails. He's off the map spiritually. Right? He marries a pagan. He stays with the pagans. The text implies a total lack of love, total lack of uh, commitment and celebration, kind of you know, the normal stuff you'd see in a wedding. You know, he just took her and went into her. It's pretty graphically bad. Really, literally pretty graphically bad, uh, just like the rest of the story. You know, it's hard to come up with enough euphemisms for what you see in this story. <clears throat> but um, you start to see... That Judah is a womanizer. He's a misogynist. He's a you know, real great role model for these three boys, apparently. Uh, Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. So it doesn't say what Ur did that was wicked, uh, but this is not a good start, kind of to the testimony of Judah as a father, the testimony to Judah's family and that family line and uh, the influence that Judah has on his family, um, it's, it's not a good start, right? God doesn't overlook sin. He takes it very seriously, and sometimes he just flat out strikes people dead for their sin. Right? We see that all over the place in the scriptures. In fact, the idea that you get is that really God should be striking everyone dead here. Uh, but, but people are spared, not because they're not wicked, because they are, but because God's a merciful God, and that's the point of the text, right? <clears throat> so then Judah, after Ur died, he said to Onan, who's his second son, go into your brother's wife, perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her, and raise up her offspring, uh, raise up offspring for your brother. Um, did you know that was the duty of a brother-in-law? <laughs> uh, hopefully, um, you know, that's not a common experience for any of us. Uh, it might not sound like it, but Judah's actually doing something good here. Right? Judah's actually doing what he's supposed to be doing. It's called leveret marriage. Leveret is, comes from the Latin word for um, brother-in-law. And you see this, this as a law set for God's people in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 25, uh, where if a, if a brother dies and his wife is left a widow, then his brother is supposed to take care of her, and uh, make her pregnant, and that son or daughter that she bears would then belong to the original, the, the dead uh, brother, as if it were uh, his. And so in, in that way, it gives the widow some protection in a society where to be a widow, just to be on your own with no family is, uh, I mean, it's basically a death sentence for you. Um, <clears throat> you. You just don't have any income. You don't have anybody to take care of you. So it gives them protection, it gives them uh, some dignity because family was a huge part of society. 
Um, and so for her to be without family would be a, a terrible thing, but it gives her a child uh, and someone to care for her in her old age is kind of like a retirement plan, right? So, um, <clears throat> it's some, and it's someone to receive the dead brother's portion of the inheritance, right? So grandpa's rich, he has some land, he's going to divide it out between all the brothers. Oh, one of them dies. For us, that means, hey, bigger share for all of us, right? Uh, but for them, it meant, nope. He still gets that share. It's passed on to his family after him. Uh, but that's something that you have to do for him as a brother-in-law. And if you, if you refused to do this, it says later in Deuteronomy 25 when this is codified as a law in, in the Mosaic law, if you refuse to do this for your dead brother and for his widow, to take care of her and give her a child, then she would publicly shame you and your reputation would be ruined along with the reputation of your whole family. Um, public shaming and the, the, the public ruining of the reputation of you and your whole family for refusing to take care of your sister-in-law in this way. Now, <clears throat> we think it's not still applicable to Christians because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, he says, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies... She's free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. So marry a Christian guy, right? Um, <clears throat> but anyway, a little bit of a side note there. Onan knew the offspring would not be his. That's what the text says. Uh, if he does this for his brother, that offspring belongs to his brother, right? And so there goes part of his inheritance, or there goes his family name off to his, his brother, his dead brother. He knew, whatever, for whatever reason, he didn't like this. He knew the offspring wouldn't be his, so whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. It's pretty graphic and, um, and pretty persistent. It's like whenever he did this, right? And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also, right? So here's where things start to get really bad. They've already, they started to get bad for Tamar, the minute she married into this family, right? Even though she's a pagan, she's a Canaanite, boy, she, she didn't do too well marrying into Joseph, uh, Judah's family here. But things are starting to get really bad for her. She's being treated as a sex object now by her dead, wicked husband's wicked brother. Right? She's being treated as a sex object. Onan was selfish about his offspring, his family name, his resources, his inheritance, whatever it was, but he didn't mind the sex part. So he uh, pretended to obey his father, but he really disobeyed his father, and he used Tamar, and used probably is not a strong enough word, right? Um, he de dehumanized her repeatedly. This was a practice, right, for him. He, he oppressed her. He, can you imagine being so crushed in spirit, being abused like this? He impoverished her. He kept her poor. Right? He kept her without hope of any kind of future family or, or wealth or anything. Right? He kept her in poverty, so God killed him. And um, just as a side note here, you should not have a casual view of sex that objectifies other people, uh, using them for your own pleasure, for your, for your own advantage. Right? That's pretty clear from the text. <clears throat> so verse 11, then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, you know, remain a widow in your father's house till, uh, till Shelah, my son, grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. 
So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Tremper Longman has written a little book called How to Read Genesis, great little book. Uh, He says, he points out that Judah attributes the death of his sons to Tamar, whom he considers to be a kind of black widow, where really the blame is to be laid at the feet of his wicked sons. He's blind to the fact that God killed his sons because they were wicked. And he's blind to the fact that um, those apples didn't fall far from the tree. That's the real problem here. Why were his sons so wicked that they deserved to die? In fact, he's probably willfully blind. He refuses to believe that his sons deserve to die because they're a chip off the old block. Uh, Which implies that it would imply that he probably deserved to die for his sins. He's, he's refusing to look at things that way. <clears throat> it might be, again, that he sent her away to her father's house, whereas normally you know, he would take care of her now that she's married into the, this family. He would take care of her until, uh, if, if his other son needed to grow up a little bit before getting married, until that happened. He sent her away, maybe because she was a constant reminder of his sin just like he had left his family, left his brothers and his father's house because they were a constant reminder of his sin against his brother Joseph. Right? So Judah sent Tamar away, disgraced. Right? She'd been kicked out of the house um, to suffer as a perpetual widow, really without any prospect of any kind of future, uh, hopeful future with a family or anything. Uh, Tamar now is the kind of person that God pities. Um, Exodus 22, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. Widows and orphans. Right? Uh, Deuteronomy 10, God executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. In Psalm 68, father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. So Tamar is uh, somebody who is exactly the kind of person that comes under the protection of God now. Um, so, verse 12, in the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adolamite. Right? So, uh, the wife of Judah, she dies. She doesn't even get a name. She doesn't get a name in this story. It shows how little Judah cared for his own wife. The, the text indicates that he wasn't really even bothered by her death. He was just kind of biding his time. There's this, this socially acceptable time of grieving after somebody dies. I can't remember how long it is, but that's when you wear black and you go around mourning and you don't have any fun during that time because everybody knows you ought to be grieving the loss of a loved one, grieving the death of your spouse. It's supposed to take a certain amount of time. Uh, he just bided his time until he'd met all those social expectations for grieving until he could go out with his buddy Hira again. Um, without looking like a complete jerk who might have been actually happy that his wife was gone. But he was a complete jerk who was probably happy that his wife was gone um, so that now he could party again. Right? He could sleep around again. Uh, going up to the sheep shearing like he was doing was like going to uh, like Mardi Gras Lots of drunkenness and debauchery and easy women, all fun, no responsibilities. 
That's what this, this is like. This, uh, it's like a pagan festival that they had. <clears throat> and when Tamar was told, your father-in-law's going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, then she had a plan, right? She had a plan. She took matters into her own hands. So, I mean, this is no innocent woman. You can see what she does here. Uh, it doesn't sound like she knew much about God. In fact, everything she knew about God, about Yahweh, the one true God, she had probably learned from Judah and Judah's family. And what do you think their testimony was like? You know? I mean, Judah was a womanizer who raised boys who were womanizers, shifted the blame to the woman when his boys got the punishment they rightly deserved, like blaming the, the wife in an abusive relationship where the the guy is, is beating and abusing his wife, and that guy goes to jail blaming the wife for that. Right? Uh, that's what Judah's like. It's a, it's a family of cruel, selfish hypocrites. Self-centered hypocrites. And there are plenty of people who say, today, kind of a modern application of this, uh, sure, I like Jesus, I like God, just can't stand his people. They're a bunch of hypocrites. Um, and a lot of the time, they have good reason to say it. They have good reason to say that. And again, a little side note, this is how you know that the Bible is true. Because it doesn't shy away from recording stuff like this. God's people are really messed up. Really messed up. This is not a religion about how awesome we are. Right? This is, um, this is a religion of grace. God shows himself <clears throat> to be good to his people in spite of the fact that they are tremendously bad. Every single one of them, right? Tamar's no exception, really. I mean, it's a pretty gnarly thing that she does. Don't try this at home type of thing. She's definitely not recorded for your imitation. She took off her widow's garments, covered herself with a veil, wrapped herself up. She dressed up like a prostitute and sat at the entrance to a a city, uh, which is on the road to where Judah was going. And, um, you know, she realized he's not giving me to his third son. So I've got to do something. I've got to take matters into my own hands here. And um, it's pretty bad, right? She's trying to get for herself what she deserves. She's trying to get it for herself. What she deserves is a a family, a a reputation, security, protection, love. You know, she's supposed to be cared for. She's trying to get it for herself here. Um, When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she'd covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, come, let me come into you. For he didn't know that it was his daughter-in-law. She said, well, what will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I'll send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, what pledge? Your, your signet and your cord and your staff. It's in your hand. So he gave them to her, went into her, and she conceived. So um, Tamar knows what kind of guy Judah is, right? It's pretty obvious at this point. She knows what kind of guy he is. He's desperate for sex. And she uses that. I mean, this is worse than Jerry Springer, right? Um, is that still on these days? I don't even know. Um, I mean, he says, "Come, let me have sex with you. I don't have any cash on me right now. You know, when I get home, I'll send you some. I'll, I'll pay for it later. Right? Um, he's probably trying to get a freebie. Right? Um, so... Instead of allowing that, she takes the equivalent of uh, modern day his, his driver's license and credit cards. You don't have any cash on you. Give me the rest of your wallet. It's the, his signet. 
and his staff. It's like these are kind of social marks of identification for him. Um, uh, you know, they're unique to each person. <clears throat> so she takes those things until he comes up with the cash, which is a young goat, right? Um, just a side note, again, lots of side notes in this. Lust makes you do really stupid things, right? You should not give your driver's license and credit cards to someone that you use for sex. That whole scenario is just wrong, right? You should not use people for sex. You should not, this is, don't get into this kind of, but lust makes you do stupid things, right? Makes you do hideously bad things. Um, but Judah's in a mad rush. I mean, he not only shows a complete lack of restraint, he's totally de desperate here, but, but he's in a hurry about it. He's in a hurry to show a complete lack of restraint. This is in stark contrast to Joseph and the self-control, the remarkable self-control that you see in Joseph's life in the very next chapter. Right? Um, and so uh, Tamar conned him, I guess, and got pregnant like, uh, like she wanted. And you get the sense, even though this is a miserable set of circumstances, you get the sense of divine providence at work. Here, even in the terrible story, she got pregnant from a single interaction here, right? Um, <clears throat> so, then she arose, she went away, taken off her veil, uh, put on the garments of her widowhood. So unlike Judah, who couldn't wait to get back in the game, take off those the garments of mourning and have that time be over, uh, she continues to mourn even her wicked husbands, right? She continues to mourn. So then uh, when Judah sent the goat by his friend, he didn't want to go himself, he sent the goat by his buddy <clears throat> to uh, take back the pledge from the woman's hand. He didn't find her. He asked the men of the place, where's the cult prostitute? No cult prostitute's been here. So um, he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. The men of the place said, there's no cult prostitute here. And Judah replied, well, let, let her keep the things as her own or we'll, she be, we'll be laughed at. Right? Just let her keep the stuff, drop it, bury it, or we'll be laughed at. You see, I, mean, I sent this young goat, and you didn't find her. Right? He's trying to clear himself. Uh, he's still concerned with holding together some sort of pitiful reputation, right? He knows he's about as bad as a guy can get. He's messed up terribly here. He just doesn't want others to know how bad he is, how, how bad he's messed up. So even though he's living among people where prostitution's normal, it's socially acceptable. We've got kind of this I mean, cult prostitutes, Everybody uses them during pagan festivals, right? Um, he sends his buddy, Hira, to find the woman in pagan. He doesn't want to be known as the guy who's looking around desperately to get his license and credit cards back from the prostitute uh, because he has a total lack of self-control. He doesn't want to be known as that guy. I mean, these are the actions of an addict, right? It really is a downward spiral for him because of his own choices, because of his evil desires. He is someone who lives for evil, but he tries to keep up the illusion of, uh, of a good life. And it's, it's about to come crashing down on him. <clears throat> right? About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Really, it's kind of, um, she's been a prostitute. Right? Not just immoral, like a prostitute. She's been, moreover, she's pregnant by prostitution. And Judah says, bring her out and let her be burned. It's, 
remarkable. He doesn't even say, oh, man, we need to talk with her. We need to find out what's going on, um, check the facts, right? He hears the story of her prostitution, and he condemns her to death instantly by burning because, I mean, she, she's messing up the family name, right, being a prostitute. Never mind that he's the kind of guy who uses prostitutes. The blind hypocrisy of this, right? And this is bad. This is a bad story. And uh, as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I'm pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Busted. Busted. He's caught. You can't cover that one up anymore. No more denial for Judah. No more running from his sins. All of them come crashing down on him around his ears right now. When, he sa- uh, when, when Tamar says to Judah, please identify whose these are. She uses the same language used in the last chapter when Judah and his brothers, they... Uh, had sold Joseph into slavery, they take his robe, covered in blood, to their father and says, please identify whose this is. Um, Please identify whether this is your son's robe or not. So all of Judah's sin was exposed. It was all flushed out at that moment. And painful though it was, it was a moment of God's mercy. Because you notice, God is not here striking him dead. painful though it was, it was a moment of God's mercy. God is merciful to us in making us to know our sins. He's merciful to us in not letting us get away with our sins forever. Not letting us hide them from everybody and pretend to ourselves that we're not really sinners. God is merciful to us in making us to know our need for his grace, which he gives freely. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. And he did not know her again. So something changed, right? doesn't explicitly point out he was converted. He was a new man. His life was changed. But it's there. It's all there. He stopped blame shifting. You know, it's his fault, this whole thing. He stopped blame shifting. He confessed his sin, right? I didn't give her to my son, Sheila, like I should have. This whole thing, I provoked her to sin. I sinned. Uh, He confessed his sin when he had just condemned her to death for her sin. He had just condemned condemned Tamar as worthy of death, which uh, he admits was not as bad as his, right? Her sin was not as bad as his. And he'd already condemned her to death, so he knows what he deserves. He repents of his womanizing. He left her alone, it says. He didn't know her again. He started treating her as better than himself. And uh, later, in Genesis, you can kind of see the results, the fruit of this transformation in his life. When um, you know, he steps in to offer himself up instead of his brother, much later in the book of Genesis... And he's, he's praised in his father's dying blessing as being beautiful and being strong. And, uh, and from his line, 
as his father blesses him, we see that from his line by Tamar, by this whole messed up thing with Tamar, uh, would come the Messiah, the, the ruler. The king of kings and lord of lords would come from him. His, his other sons had died for their wickedness. Judah had taught them everything they knew, but God spared him, and God changed him. And the only difference between him and his sons, the only difference was the mercy of God. It was the mercy of God, which came about in a pretty strange and severe way. Right? Uh, Tamar is a kind of a redeemer here, not by any means a perfect redeemer. But uh, she had that effect in his life of making him to know God's mercy in a transformational way. It's strange indeed that God would work with people like this. Right? That they would be factored into Jesus' genealogy. That he would work for people like this. That he wouldn't just kill them. That he would even give his own son for people like this. Uh, but that's exactly what we really need um, is a savior that comes from people like this and for people like this. We need that because really we're a world full of people like this and, and we are people like this. You know, we're people like Judah and people like Tamar. We're sinners. That's the only kind of people there are to be saved by grace. And God does it because he's the God of grace, right? A passage like this confirms it for us. This terrible story is not really about these people. It's not... It's not really about these people. It's a story about the grace of God who's working in the world to fix everything for people like this. Even to use people like this in fixing the world. Incorporating them into what he's doing. And the supreme example of God's grace at work among sinners is in the life and death of Jesus himself. Jesus is full of grace and truth, it says in John 1. But he's surrounded on all sides by weak and broken and wicked people people who used and abused and tortured and oppressed and killed him when given the chance, and still he came our souls to save. Still he came to forgive us our sins through his body on the cross. Still, even though we are who we are, he came to trade his life for ours, to share his heavenly inheritance with us. He's the one whose very presence confronts us, mercifully, but it's a confrontation with the sinfulness of our sins. If we're going to be forgiven, we need him, and we need him to die. Uh, That's how bad things are. The innocent one has to die if we're going to be made right with God and forgiven our sins. And he's the one who came and did it. He, He came in order to make us beautiful and make us strong, to make us new in his grace, in spite of the fact that we're precisely the opposite. We're ugly and weak and broken, uh, left to ourselves. God is able to transform the story of people like Judah and Tamar. God is able to transform the story of this entire world through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So don't despair over your sins. God is able to transform your story by bringing you into his family through faith in his son. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray that the... um, the graphic and uh, very strong and bold nature of this story from Genesis 38 would not be missed by any of us, that it would have its full work in us, that you would make us, each and every single one of us, to know 
that we are truly sinners in desperate need of your grace, or else we deserve to, to die for our wickedness. We, we pray that um, you would make us to know your salvation through Jesus Christ, who came into the world uh, for our good, not to condemn us, but to save us through his life and death on the cross. And we pray that as we become uh, more familiar with the gospel story and all the stories of the scripture that point us to our need for your grace and your provision of that grace through Christ, that as we become more familiar uh, with these stories, they would become uh, our story on a deeper level that we would uh, instinctively know and, uh, and act like people who are saved by your grace alone, who are not different from anybody in this world um, in and of ourselves, but the only difference in our lives is your mercy. We pray that that would uh, be a truth that takes its place deeper in our hearts and that it would renew our minds more and more so that as we go through this world, uh, we would not be living for ourselves, for our own pleasures, for our own glory, but that we would truly be living for you because you are the great and glorious and gracious one who deserves all the glory for our salvation. We pray that this would be true for us uh, by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.